The little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. The current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadows under the bridge. The water looked paralyzingly cold. George wondered how long a man could stay alive. The glassy blackness had a strange hypnotic effect on him. He leaned still farther over the railing. I wouldn't do that if I were a quiet voice beside said. George turned resentfully to a little man he had never seen before. He was stout, well past middle age, and his round cheeks pink in the winter air, as though they had just been shaved. Wouldn't do what, George asked sullenly. What you were thinking of doing. How do you know what I was thinking? Oh, we make it our business to know a lot of the stranger said easily. George wondered what the man's business was. He was a most unremarkable little person, the sort you would pass in a crowd and never notice, unless you saw his bright blue eyes, that is. You couldn't forget them, for they were the kindest, sharpest eyes you ever saw. Nothing else about him was noteworthy. He wore a moth-eaten old fur cap and a shabby overcoat that was stretched tightly across his paunchy belly. He was carrying a small black satchel. It wasn't a doctor's bag, too large for that, and not the right shape. It was a salesman's sample kit. George decided distastefully that the fellow was probably some sort of peddler, the kind who would go around poking his sharp little nose into other people's affairs. Looks like snow, doesn't it, the stranger said, glancing up appraisingly at the overcast sky. It'll be nice to have a white Christmas. They're getting scarce these days. So are a lot of things. He turned to face George squarely. You all right now? Of course I'm all right. What made you think I was? George fell silent. Before the stranger's quiet gaze, the little man shook his head. You know you shouldn't think of such things. And on Christmas Eve of all time, you gotta consider Mary. And your mother too. George opened his mouth to ask how the stranger could know his wife's name. But the fellow anticipated him. Don't ask me how I know such things. It's my business to know. That's why I came along this way tonight. Luckily I did, too. He glanced down at the dark water and shuddered. Well, if you know so much about me, George said, give me just one good reason why I should be alive. The little man made a queer chuckling sound. Come, come, it can't be that bad. You've got your job at the bank, and Mary, and the kids. You're healthy, and young, and, and sick of everything, George cried. I'm stuck here in this mud hole for life, the same dull work day after day. Other men are leading exciting lives, but I, well, I'm just a small town bank clerk that even the army didn't want. I never did anything really useful or interesting, and it looks as if I never will. I might as just as well be dead. I might better be dead. Sometimes I wish I were. In fact, I wish I'd never been born. The little man stood looking at him in the growing darkness. What was that you said? He asked softly. I said I wish I'd never been born, George repeated firmly. And I mean it, too. The stranger's pink cheeks glowed with excitement. Why, that's wonderful. You've solved everything. I was afraid you were going to give me some trouble, but now you've got the solution yourself. You'd wish you'd never been born? All right, okay. You haven't. What do you mean, George growled? You haven't been born, just that. No one here knows you? You have no responsibilities, no job, no wife, no children? Why, you haven't even a mother. You couldn't have, of course. All of your troubles are over. Your wish has been granted officially. Nuts, George snorted and turned away. The stranger ran after him and caught him by the arm. 
You'd better take this with you, he said, holding out his satchel. It'll open a lot of doors that might otherwise be slammed in your face. What doors and whose face, George scoffed. I know everybody in this town, and besides, I'd like to see anybody slam a door in my face. Yes, I know, the little man said, patiently. But take this anyway. It can't do any harm, and it may help. He opened the satchel and displayed a number of brushes. You'd be surprised how useful these brushes can be as introduction, especially the free one. These, I mean. He hauled out a plain little hairbrush. I'll show you how to use it. He thrust the satchel into George's reluctant hand and began. When the lady of the house comes to the door, you give her this, and then talk fast. Say, good evening, madam. I'm from the World Cleaning Company, and I want to present with you this handsome and useful brush. Absolutely free. No obligation to purchase anything at all. After that, of course, it's a cinch. Now you try. He forced the brush into George's hand. George promptly dropped the brush into the satchel and fumbled with the catch, finally closing with an angry snap. Here, he said, and then stopped abruptly, for there was no one in sight. The little stranger must have slipped away in the bushes growing along the river bank, George thought. He certainly wasn't going to play hide-and-seek with them. It was nearly dark and getting colder every minute. He shivered and turned up his coat collar. The street lights had been turned on, and Christmas candles in the windows glowed soft. The little town looked remarkably cheerful. After all, the place you grew up in was the one spot on earth where you could really feel at home. George felt a sudden burst of affection, even for the crotchety old Hank Biddle, whose house he was past. He remembered the quarrel he had had when his car had scraped a piece of bark out of Hank's big maple tree. George looked up at the vast spread of leafless branches towering over him in the darkness. The tree must have been growing there since Indian time. He felt a sudden twinge of guilt for the damage he had done. He had never stopped to inspect the wound, for he was ordinarily afraid to have Hank catch him even looking at the tree. Now he stepped out boldly into the roadway to examine the huge trunk. Hank must have repaired the scar or painted it over, for there was no sign of it. George struck a match and bent down to look more closely. He straightened up with an odd sinking feeling in his stomach. There wasn't any scar. The bark was smooth and undamaged. He remembered what the little man at the bridge had said. It was all nonsense, of course, but the non-existent scar bothered. When he reached the bank, he saw there was something wrong. The building was dark and he knew he had turned the vault light on. He noticed too that someone had left the window shades up. He ran around to the front and there was a battered old sign fastened to the door. George could just make out the word, for rent or sale. Apply, James Silver Realist. Perhaps it was some of the boy's tricks, he thought wildly. Then he saw a pile of ancient leaves and tattered newspapers in the bank's ordinarily immaculate doorway. And the windows looked as though they hadn't been washed in years. A light was still burning across the street in Jim Silva's office. George dashed over to him and tore the door open. Jim looked up at him from his ledger book in surprise. What can I do for you, young man? He said in a polite voice. He reserved for potential customers. The bank, George said breathlessly. What's the matter with it? The old bank building, Jim Silva turned around and looked out the window. Nothing that I can see of. Wouldn't like to rent or buy it, would you? You mean it's out of business? Ah, for a good ten years. Went bust. Strange around these parts, ain't you? George sagged against the wall. I was here some time ago, he said weakly. The bank was all right then. I even knew some of the people who worked there. Didn't you know a feller named Marty Jenkins? Did you? Marty Jenkins? Why, he... George was about to say that Marty had never worked in the bank. Couldn't have, in fact. For when they had both left school, they had applied for a job, and George had gotten it. But now, of course, things were different. You would 
have to be careful. No, I didn't know him, he said slowly. Not really that. Then maybe you heard how he skipped out with $50,000. That's why the bank went broke. Pretty near ruined everybody around here. Silva was looking at him sharply. I was hoping for a minute maybe you'd know where he is. I lost plenty in that crash myself. We'd like to get our hands on Marty Jenkins. Didn't he have a brother? Seems to me he had a brother named Arthur. Art? Oh, sure. But he's all right. He didn't know where his brother went. It had a terrible effect on him, too. Took to the drink he did. It's too bad. And hard on his wife. He married a nice girl. George felt the sinking feeling in his stomach. Who did he marry? He demanded hoarsely. Both he and Art had courted Mary. Girl named Mary Thatcher, Silva said cheerfully. She lives up on the hill just this side of the church. Hey, where are you going? But George had bolted out of the office. He ran past the empty bank building and turned up the hill. For a moment, he thought he was going straight to Mary. The house next to the church had been given them by her father as a wedding present. Naturally, Art Jenkins would have gotten it if he had married Mary. George wondered whether they had any children. Then he knew he couldn't face them. Not yet, any. Anyway. He decided to visit his parents and find out more about them. There were candles burning in the window of the little weather-beaten house beside and a Christmas wreath was hanging on the glass panel on the front door. George raised the gate latch with a loud click. A dark shape on the porch jumped up and began to growl. Then it hurled itself down the steps, barking ferociously. Brownie, you old fool, stop that. Don't you know me? But the dog advanced menacingly and drove him back behind the gate. The porch light snapped on and George's father stepped outside to call the dog off. The barking subsided to a low, angry growl. His father held the dog by the collar while George cautiously walked past. He could see that his father did not know him. Is the lady of the house in, he asked. His father waved, waved toward the door. Go on in, he said cordially. I'll chain this dog up. She can be mean with strangers. His mother, who was waiting in the hallway, obviously did not recognize. George opened his sample, grabbed the first brush that came to hand. Good evening, ma'am, he said politely. I'm from the World Cleaning Company. We're giving out a free sample brush. I thought you might like to have one. No obligation, no obligation at all. His, his voice faltered. His mother smiled at his awkwardness. I suppose you'll want to sell me something. I'm not really sure I need any. No, I'm not selling anything, he assured her. The regular salesman will be around in a few days. This is just, well, just a Christmas present from the company. How nice. People never gave away such good brushes before. This is a special offer, he said. His father entered the hall and closed the door. Won't you come in for a while and sit down with us? His mother said. You must be tired walking so much. Thank you, ma'am. I don't mind if I do. He entered the little parlor and put his bag down. The room looked different, although he could not figure out why. I used to know this town pretty well, he used to make comments. knew of some of the townspeople. I remembered a girl named Mary Thatcher. She married Art Jenkins there. You must know of the course, his mother said. We know Mary well. Any children? He asked casually. Two, a boy and a girl. George sighed audibly. My, you must be tired, isn't it? Perhaps I can get you a cup of tea. No, ma'am, don't bother me, he said. I'll be having supper. So he looked around the little parlor, trying to find out why it looked different. Over the mantelpiece hung a framed photo, which had been taken on his kid brother Harry's 16th birthday. He remembered how they had gone to Potter's studio to photograph together. There was something queer about the picture. It showed only one figure. Harry, that's your son, he asked. His mother's face clouded. She nodded, but said nothing. I think I met him too, George said hesitantly. His name's Harry, isn't it? His mother turned away, making a strange choking noise in her throat. 
Her husband put his arm clumsily around her shoulder. His voice, which was always mild and gentle, suddenly became harsh. You couldn't have met him, he said. He's been dead a long while. He was drowned the day that picture was taken. George's mind flew back to the long-ago August afternoon when he and Harry had visited Potter's studio. On their way home, they had gone swimming. Harry had been seized with a cramp. He remembered he had pulled him out of the water and had thought nothing of it. But suppose he hadn't been there. I'm sorry, he said miserably. I guess I'd better go. I hope you like the brush, and I wish you both a very Merry Christmas. There, he had put his foot in it again, wishing them a Merry Christmas when they were thinking dead son. Brownie tugged fiercely at her chain as George went down the porch steps and accompanied his departure with a hostile, rolling growl. He wanted desperately now to see Mary. He wasn't sure he could stand not being recognized by her, but he had to see her. The lights were on in the church, and the choir was making last-minute preparations preparations for Christmas vespers. The organ had been practicing holy night evening after evening until George had become thoroughly sick of it. But now the music almost tore his heart out. He stumbled blindly up the path to his own house. The lawn was untidy and the flower bushes he had kept carefully trimmed were neglected and badly sprouted. Aunt Jenkins could hardly be expected to care for such. When he knocked at the door there was a long silence, followed by the shout of a child. Then Mary came to the door. At the sight of her, George's voice almost failed him. Merry Christmas, he managed to say at last. His hand shook as he tried to open the satchel. When George entered the living room, unhappy as he was, he could not help noticing the secret grin that the two high-priced blue sofa they had quarreled over was there. Evidently, Mary had gone through the same thing with Art Jenkins and had won the argument with him, too. George got his satchel open. One of the brushes had a bright blue handle and very colored bristles. It was obviously a brush not intended to be given away, but George didn't care. He handed it to Mary. This would be fine for your sofa, he said. My, that's a pretty brush. You're giving it away free? He nodded solemnly. Special introductory offer. One way for the company to keep excess profit. Share them with its friends. She stroked the sofa gently with the brush, smoothing out the velvet nap. It is a nice brush. Thank you, I. There was a sudden scream from the kitchen, and two small children rushed in. A little homely-faced girl flung herself into her mother's arms, sobbing loudly as a boy of seven came running after her, snapping a toy pistol at her. Mommy, she won't die, he yelled. I shot her a hundred times. She won't die. He looked just like Art Jenkins, George thought. Acts like him, too. The boy suddenly turns his attention to him. Who are you? He demanded belligerently. He pointed his pistol at George and pulled the trigger. You're dead, he cried. You're dead. Why don't you fall down and die? There was a heavy step on the porch. The boy looked frightened and backed away. George saw Mary glance apprehensively at the door. Art Jenkins came in. He stood for a moment in the doorway, clinging to the knob for support. His eyes were glazed and his face was very red. Who's this, he demanded thickly. He's a brush salesman, said Mary. He gave me this brush. Brush sales, sneered. Tell him to get out of here. We don't want no brush. Art hiccuped violently and lurched across the room sofa, where he sat down suddenly. And we don't want no brush sale either. George looked despairingly at, at Mary. Her eyes were begging him to go. Art had lifted his feet up on the sofa and was sprawling out, muttering unkind things about brush sale. George went to the door, followed by Art's son, who kept snapping the pistol at him and saying, You're dead. You're dead. Perhaps the boy was right. 
Bright thought when he reached the porch. Maybe he was dead, or maybe this was all a bad dream from which he might eventually awake. He wanted to find the little man on the bridge again and try to persuade him to cancel the whole deal. He hurried down the hill and broke into a run. When he neared the river, George was relieved to see the little stranger standing on the bridge. I've had enough, he gasped. Get me out of this. You gotta get me out of this. Get me out of this. You got me into this? The stranger raised his eyebrow. I got you. I like that. You were granted your wish. You got everything you asked for. You're the freest man on earth. You have no ties. You can go anywhere. Do anything. What more can you possibly change me back pleaded change me back please not just for my sake but for others too you don't know what a mess this town is in you don't understand i've got to get back they need me here i understand right enough the stranger said slowly i just wanted to make sure you did you had the greatest gift of all conferred upon the gift of life of being a part of this world and taking part in it yet you denied that gift as the stranger spoke the church bell high up on the hill sounded calling the townspeople to christmas best then the downtown church bell started ringing i've got to get back george said desperately you can't cut me out like this why it's murder suicide rather said the stranger murmured you brought it on yourself however since it's christmas eve well anyway close your eyes and keep listening to the bells sank lower keep listening to the bell. george did as he was told he felt the cold wet snow touch his cheek and then another and another when he opened his eyes the snow was falling fast so fast that it obscured everything around him the little stranger could not be seen but then neither could anything else the snow was so thick that george had to grope for the bridge railing as he started towards the village he thought he heard someone saying merry christmas but the bells were drowning out all rival sounds so he could not be sure when he reached hank biddle's house he stopped and walked out into the roadway peering down anxiously at the base of the big maple tree the scar was there thank heaven he touched the tree affectionately he'd have to do something about the wound get a tree surgeon he'd evidently changed he was himself maybe it was all a dream or perhaps he had been hypnotized by the smooth flowing black he had heard of such things at the corner of maine and the bridge street he almost collided with a hurrying figure it was jim silva the real estate agent hello hello george jim said cheerfully late tonight ain't you i should think you'd want to be home early on christmas eve george drew a long breath i just wanted to see if the bank is on i've got to make sure the vault light is on sure it's on i saw it as i went past let's look huh george said pulling at silva's sleeve he wanted the assurance of a witness he dragged the surprised real estate dealer around to the front of the bank where the light was gleaming through the falling snow i told you it was on silva said some irritation i had to make sure George. thanks and merry christmas and he was off like a streak running up the hill he was in a hurry to get home but not in such a hurry that he couldn't stop for a moment at his parents house where he wrestled with brownie until the friendly old bulldog waggled all over with delight he grasped his startled brother's hand and wrung it frantically wishing him an almost hysterical merry christmas then he dashed across the parlor to examine a certain photograph he kissed his mother joked with his father and was out of the house a few seconds later stumbling and slipping on the newly fallen snow he ran up the hill the church was bright with light and the choir and the organ were going full tilt 
George flung the door to his home open and called out at the top of his voice, Mary, where are you? Mary, kids? His wife came toward him, dressed from going to church and making gestures to silence. I've just put the children to bed, she protested, but not another word could she get out of her mouth, for he smothered her with kisses and then dragged her up to the children's room, where he violated every tenet of parental behavior by madly embracing his son and daughter and waking them up thoroughly. It was not until Mary got him downstairs that he began to be coherent. I thought I'd lost. Oh, Mary, I thought I'd lost. What's the the little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. The current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadow. Most terribly cold it was. It snowed. It was nearly quite dark, the last evening of the year. In this cold and darkness, there went along the street a poor little girl, bareheaded and with naked feet. When she left home, she had slippers on. It is true, but what was the good of that? They were very large slippers, which her mother had hitherto worn. So large were they, and the poor little thing lost them as she scuffled away across the street because of two carriages that rolled by dreadfully fast. One slipper was nowhere to be found. The other had been laid hold of by an urchin, and off he ran with it. He thought it would do capitally for a cradle when he some day or other should have children himself. So the little maiden walked on with her tiny naked feet that were quite red and blue from cold. She carried a quantity of matches and an old apron, and she held a bundle of them in her hand. Nobody had bought anything of her the whole live-long day. No one had given her a single farthing. She crept along, trembling with cold and hunger, a very picture of sorrow, the poor little thing. The flakes of snow covered her long, fair hair, which fell in beautiful curls around her neck. But of that, of course, she never once now thought. From all the windows, the candles were gleaming, and it smelt so deliciously of roast goose, for you know it was New Year's Eve. Yes, of that, she thought. In a corner formed by two houses, of which one advanced more than the other, she seated herself down and cowered together. Her little feet she had drawn close up to her, but she grew colder and colder, and to go home she did not venture, for she had not sold any matches, and could not bring a farthing of money. From her father she would certainly get blows, and at home it was too cold, for above her she had only the roof, through which the wind whistled even though the largest cracks were stopped up with straw and rags. Her little hands were almost numbed with cold. Oh, a match might afford her a world of comfort. She only dared take a single out of her bundle, draw it against the wall, and warm her fingers by it. She drew one out. How it blazed, how it burnt. It was a warm, bright flame like a candle, as she held her hands over it. It was a wonderful light. It seemed really to the little maiden as though she were sitting before a large iron stove with burnished brass feet and a brass ornament at top. The fire burned with such blessed influence it warmed so delightfully. The little girl had already stretched out her feet to warm them too, but the small flame went out. The stove vanished. She had only the remains of the burnt-out match in her hand. She rubbed another against the wall. It burned brightly, and where the light fell on the wall, there the wall became transparent like a veil. 
so that she could see into the room. On the table was spread a snow-white tablecloth. Upon it was a splendid porcelain service, and the roast goose was steaming, famously with its stuffing of apple and dried plums. And what was still more capital to behold was the goose hopped down from the dish, reeled about on the floor with the knife and fork in its breast, till it came up to the poor little girl. When the match went out, and nothing but the thick, cold, damp wall was left behind, she lighted another match. Now there she was, sitting under the most magnificent Christmas tree. It was still larger and more decorated than the one she had seen to the glass door in the rich merchant's house. Thousands of lights were burning on the green branches, and galley-colored pictures, such as she had seen in the shop windows, looked down upon her. The little maiden stretched out her hands toward them. When the match went out, the lights on the Christmas tree rose higher and higher. She saw them now as stars in heaven. One fell down and formed a long trail of fire. Someone is just dead, said the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only person who had loved her, and who was now no more, had told her that when a star falls, a soul ascends to heaven. She drew another match against the wall. It was again light, and in the luster there stood the old grandmother, so bright and radiant, so mild, and with such an expression of love. Grandmother, cried the little one, oh, take me with you. You go away when the match burns out. You vanish like the warm stove, like, like the delicious roast goose, and like the magnificent Christmas tree. And she rubbed the whole bundle of matches quickly against the wall, for she wanted to be quite sure of keeping her grandmother near her. And the matches gave such a brilliant light that it was brighter than at noonday. Never formerly had the grandmother been so beautiful and so tall. She took the little maiden on her arm, and both flew in brightness, and in joy so high, so very high. And then above was neither cold, nor hunger, nor anxiety. They were with God. But in the corner, at the cold hour of dawn, sat the poor girl, with rosy cheeks, with a smiling mouth, leaning against the wall, frozen to death, on the last evening of the old year. Stiff and stark sat the girl there with her matches, of which one bundle had been burnt. She wanted to warm herself, people said. No one had the slightest suspicion of what beautiful things she had seen. No one even dreamed of the splendor in which, with her grandmother, she had entered the joys of a new year. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony. That such close dealings implied three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing left to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles. With sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second. Take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter box, into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also entertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity, when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now when the income was shrunk to 20 
The letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat, walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar eighty-seven from which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months. With this result, $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only a dollar eighty-seven to buy Jim a present. Her Jim, many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you had seen a pier glass in an $8 bat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs, in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly, and she faltered for a minute and stood still while wearing a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she cluttered out of the door and down the stairs to the street, where she stopped where the sign read M.M.E. Safrani, hair goods of all kinds, one ate up Randella, and collected herself panting. Madam hardly looked the Safrani. Will you buy my hair, asked Della. I buy hair, said the madam. Take your hat off and let's have the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said the madam, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. 
Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor, she was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last, it surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it. In any of the stores she had turned, all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob, chain simple and chaste in design properly proclaiming its value by substance alone, and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and the value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it. She hurried home with the seventy-eight cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by the generosity added to love. Which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within forty minutes her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself. Before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob and chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stairway, down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying silent little prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in, and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family, he knew. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door. As immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail, his eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval nor horror, nor any of the sentiments she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her, fixed with the peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had to cut my hair off and sold it because I couldn't live through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again, you won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. 
cut off your hair, asked Jim, laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet. Even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair's gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs on my head were numbered, she went on with a sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. His dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dilly, he said. I don't think there is anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore the string and paper. And then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of the combs, side and back that Della had worshipped for long in a Broadway window, beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear on the beautiful varnished hair. They were expensive combs she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned them were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a singed cat and cried, Oh, oh, Jim. Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him, eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with the, with the reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day. Now give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hand under the back of his head and smiled. Dell said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men. 
who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. In a last word to the wise of these days, of all who give and receive gifts, they are the wisest. They are the magi.